Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Fred Destin of Stride. Uh, Fred, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Fred, by, by way of introduction, why don't you talk about what you're trying to do with Stride exactly? W- what is the mission and what, is, uh, what does success uh, look like? Uh, so, I started Stride uh, about mid-2017 is when we, we started the project with um, Harry Stebbings, the host of the 20 Minute VC podcast. And I think uh, fundamentally, everybody who knows me had always told me you should start your own thing. Um, so I think I had a some form of entrepreneurial itch to scratch, which is purely purely centered around my own needs. But I also thought it would be a great opportunity to do venture as sort of I th- the way I thought it should be done. And my very simple philosophy on this is to... Uh, build a very small team, and we think of ourselves almost as like craftspeople, which is we are not designed to scale. We are not designed to raise large funds. We do everything ourselves. We carry our own bags. We work directly with the founders. And so a kind of small is beautiful, uh, you know, small batch approach to investing and to working with startups, which is, again, fundamentally what I like, uh, what I think both of us are good at, and I think what founders, at least a certain portion of the founder population, enjoys from a, from a capital partner. If you if if capital was no constraint uh, at all, what, what's the ideal fund size uh, for, for you, and and h- h- how do you think about that? In the sense, of, you know, first round ideal fund is you know two two twenty five million. Benchmark is four fifty. You know, uh, Adrian is one billion plus. I, I, you know, your fund size is your strategy in some sense. So, how, how do you think about the different trade offs there? So we would be aligned, I suppose, to IA Ventures, so Roger Ehrenberg in New York, or to Founder Collective, uh, maybe more Founder Collective in the sense that we like to come in relatively early with largest checks, and then we don't mind getting diluted alongside our founders. So we're trying to sort of maximize alignment. We're not designed to be a lifecycle fund. So we have to pick really, really well at the outset, which means we, that's why we do small batch investing, you know, high conviction fewer projects, bigger checks. And we really don't want to be big. And so we are capital constrained by design. Um, and I think optimal fund size for us is probably 100. If we, if we ever ended up with four partners, maybe 125. Uh, and I don't think any bigger than that ever. Yeah. So when you say you found a collective, does that mean that you're putting most of your money up front and not, not really doing much for follow-on? Uh, so we we do uh, some, and I think the same way uh, first round and founder collective would. And you know sometimes uh, founders will need support, but fundamentally you're correct. We try and write a meaningful check. We're happy to go completely alone and write a meaningful check at the beginning, and then we will effectively uh, dilute alongside the founder uh, along the way. So so with caveats, you know, but our, our reserve ratio is smaller uh, probably than a lot of players in the industry. And, and and say more. Do you uh, on the uh, the fund size? 
do you think, for example, a $200 million fund would uh, be too many companies for you to handle or that returns would be, you know, it'd be harder to return or how do you think, why, why does it break? There's a, there's a virtuous circle around the small size, which is, you know, if you look at diversification in a portfolio and you actually run the math, in theory, in venture capital, the more you diversify, the better your returns are. So effectively, you run like a Monte Carlo simulation on an actual distribution of venture returns. The optimal might be a thousand companies. That's what the math would tell you. But then the boundary that you hit is, you know, founders can choose where they take capital from. And so we want to be selected. I think, of course, we want to do smart selection, but the reality is great founders have choice of capital. So in order to be selected, we need to keep our portfolio narrow. So you're trying to hit that tension point between having enough diversification that your portfolio works, but having few enough companies that you can actually do what you enjoy, which is working with founders, and also uh, be able to maintain your SLA vis-a-vis the founders. And that number, it turns out, is around 22. You know, if you run the math, that's where you get you know, something like 85% of the benefits of diversification. And then they tend to flatten out as you increase the number of companies. So that's kind of the trade-off that we looked at. And so, uh, yes, is my say more about how it flattens out, because my understanding that, you know, Sequoia has like a 5% unicorn rate, I think you know the average is like two point five percent, and so are you, are you saying? Oh, you're saying at twenty two, that's when you're likely to have one unicorn, and so unless you do you know a hundred more companies, you know you're not likely to get necessarily another. Is that, is that why you pick twenty two? Because the two point five percent unicorn rate. So uh, no, I would give uh, credit to Jerry Neumann um, of Reactor Wheel, who I love, and Jerry is probably the person who's done the most correct or the most rigorous analysis of portfolio diversification in venture. And we are basically essentially trying to eyeball when is diversification too little based on the whole of the industry's returns over time. So what you're always betting on as a manager anyway, is that within your chosen universe, you'll be able to pick on average better winners than the average of the market. So I don't look at these macro uh, at that macro data too much in the sense that we said our core hub is London. London has, I think, roughly half the unicorns in Europe. I think it's 46 out of 90 odd. And, you know, we said, how can we become the best? Or, you know, if we're not the best, we're one of the top three uh, seed funds out of London and focus exclusively on making that happen. We then added, we felt we could add a second hub. So we do London, Paris. But basically the way we limited our universe is by focusing on two hubs exclusively. And then within that, you know, just work your way into the best possible deal flow, uh, push your brand out there such that the best founders will know at the very least to call you and then, you know, win their trust and win their confidence in the room uh, when you're in front of them. So like I said, it's very artisan, um, but uh, hopefully the hit rate will will um, you know, will be good enough. And and your partner, uh, Harry Stebbings, what is your philosophy on uh, on sort of investing in talent when, when they're young? What, what did you sort of... Uh, seeing Harry that said, oh, this person should be a, a partner with me, someone who's been doing it a lot, lot longer. And wh- what does that say largely about your 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 sort of talent uh, identification philosophy? I've never thought of Harry uh, or I've rarely thought of Harry as being young. Um, <laughs> so when he interviewed me for the first time for the show, it was an exceptional interview. And then we stayed in the room. This was back when I was a GP at Excel. We stayed in the room for three hours probably. And then we became uh, fast friends after that and fast friends in large part because I found the level of depth in him when talking about business models and people, you know, he's got incredible 
sense for people. And so I always thought of him, of course, he's younger than me and, you know, I have more transaction experience, but I always thought of him as a peer. And so I think that in my mind, we had a very organic relationship that built up that was based on uh, mutual appreciation of each other's brain at the beginning, and then over time, trust. And I think today we have each other's back, and we also complement each other quite well. Um, so I wouldn't say there wasn't a strategy where I was sort of picking a young person. I always thought of Harry as my peer. And in fact, you know, we split the carry equally when we started the fund because uh, I thought, you know, if he finds the next, the next Skype or King or Deliveroo, I don't ever want him to feel aggrieved and his chances of finding it might be higher than mine, you know, because he's in the right demographic to find the next big company. So, so I never thought of him as young. I think in terms of talent development, you know, we practice, we develop each other and, and, and with PR third partner, uh, we practice very radical transparency on a day-to-day basis. And so we kind of managed to establish, uh, I guess, a, a mindset where we will tell each other coming out of of a meeting, if we could have done something better, uh, if something was bothering the other person, but I think with good intentions. Uh, by the way, that emulates the type of relationship we're trying to build with founders, which is we very much encourage them to tell us when we suck, and then we try and create a relationship of trust where we can engage in like meaningful conversation around the business they're trying to build. But you know, it comes from a place of trying to make everything better and finding solutions rather than you know looking at the past in recrimination. And, and how did you guys think about, you added another partner, who, who you needed or what type of skill set you needed to complement you to? So I, I'm going to go back to the same answer. In Europe, finding a quality partner is incredibly hard is the reality. So what I mean by that is a lot of them are locked into the best platforms and won't move. Our kind of talent pool of investment is relatively young and i don't mean by age but you know the the industry has probably doubled in size in the last 10 years and i find that finding a great partner gp associate is tough and, and that's because the, in the world of venture it's like it's not like it's rocket science to do venture capital you know the problems are always the same and there's plenty of people that are smart enough but you kind of have to mix people skills strategy skills funding skills investment skills and and, and um, there's a whole portfolio of skills that need to come together so that you don't end up either being over-indexing on the investment side and being an asshole uh, or uh, being being way too much of a cheerleader and not uh, daring to have the tough conversations. And on top of that, you know, to make things more complicated, we needed to find someone who was okay running small funds, uh, who didn't want to maximize for management fees, who was okay with the, the, the kind of artisan approach. So that's a lot of constraints. Now, so the constraint we put on ourselves is, Let's try and see if we can find someone who we feel is exceptional uh, and not what is the specific skill set that we're trying to solve for. Uh, because I think, you know, at, at the end of the day, you're looking for a five-legged sheep, and I would much rather focus on what we feel is a star talent. And by the way, you don't know that at the beginning, so you have to see also how people develop, so you kind of got to take chances versus a kind of identified skill set, you know, tick the box type of recruitment approach that may be doable in the, in the Bay Area. I don't know, but I can tell you in Europe, that's just really hard to do. And when you said Harry's more likely to be in their demographic, is, 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 that, is there sort of some data or belief that the, the, you know, the next great founder, of course, there are older great founders, but is more likely to be young? Well, I think the, the beauty of entrepreneurs, right, is like a, a young entrepreneurs is they kind of don't play by the rules at all. And, you know, they don't know what they don't know. And that's actually a quality very often. You know, most of the people who reinvent industries 
well, a lot of them at least come from outside industry, challenge the status quo and build things differently. So we've backed, uh, we have a number of uh, university dropouts. And I don't mean this in the Peter Thiel, you know, uh, romantic sense of the word but people who just like did not function well at university uh, were kind of hacking game hosting platforms at 16 and you know never fit within the system have kind of quote unquote no formal education but are fantastic and so you find people like that they're more likely to have original angles around how the world should look tomorrow than you know a uh, third time around founder by the way our portfolio is probably a kind of pretty good split between third time around founders and then people who have somewhat unlikely backgrounds. So we've kind of, we've done both, but, but I do think the future belong uh, to the young and, you know, man, I'll be, I'll, don't come and ask, even though I'm a creative person and I keep my mind open, you know, I'm not going to be the one who tells you where teens are spending their time or exactly where services oriented architectures are going to go in the next 10 years. I'm really good at absorbing that really quickly, but I'm sort of humble enough to recognize that, you know, I got, I got to play to my strength. Right. So Harry hunts in different places and and it's just, it's just a different pool of talent that he goes after and which I can connect to very well, but whether I could source uh, in that, in that pool of talent is more of a question. Totally. I, I want to talk about uh, the the macro right now on a few few different uh, points of view. So, what is? Can you give a bit of an overview of, of what you see happening, not, not just right now, but uh, but in the future? How you think we bounce back or or don't bounce back for, uh, for, from this, and how that's perhaps different than or, or similar to two thousand eight or, or previous? You know, what can we learn from previous uh, recessions? Sure. Um, so the the quick the quick cliff note notes on that are, um, I think this is more similar to 01 to 03 and possibly worse than 08. Um, 08 for the tech sector was primarily liquidity crisis in 09. So which means, you know, the pool of capital from LPs dried up incredibly fast. Um, and, you know, it was, we had banks going into that crisis, I think it was 32 times over levered uh, or levered on, on, on their equity. And so it was a massive, massive sucking sound of liquidity moving out of the system. And, you know, pretty hard crash in 09. But for tech startups, you know, we had the iPhone, the app stores, you know, massive rise in connectivity, a whole new wave of of use cases being developed at speed. And so actually the tech sector, while it suffered a little bit on the funding side, you know, was actually doing quite well underneath, right? There was a very strong secular trend that was pulling it forward. And and I think that we we stopped feeling the pain like sometimes in, you know, late or nine, I mean, it started to, to look really good. And then we had this massive uh, acceleration in, in price inflation from 2013, 14 onwards. 2000 to 2003 was more severe and kind of people forget that because it's like, okay, so April 2000, we had the paper uh, blow up. In beginning of 2001, we were still kind of okay. And then September 11th happened and that got tough. And then Welcome went bust in March 02 and all the Silex, you know, all the next gen telecoms went bust. About 100 billion of telecoms market cap got sucked out of the system. And then it got really hard. I mean, I think Q3 02 was probably the bottom. But I remember being on the board of a company, you know, we make. 25 million in revenue uh, in 2001 and, you know, flat on the previous year and then 15 in 2002 on a very good company, right? And you, you can imagine what that does to a roughly 
200 person organization to see revenues drop by like 40%. It was absolutely awful. And so um, you, that was a long crossing of the desert uh, with multiple cuts and the situation kept deteriorating. And what I'm kind of concerned here is that, you know, it's very hard for the human brain to really anticipate the depth of bad news. And even though you can see how the dominoes are falling, you don't quite process it because every day feels normal. Um, but I think that we, we got a few steps to go down before we can start thinking about going back up again. So I expect this crisis to gradually deepen to, and, and for it to be, to, be, to be long and painful. Again, not to be too negative because there's this secular wave of tech that is still pushing us in the back, which means, you know, we first attacked digital industries, you know, music, uh, media, etc. Then we attacked food. But in reality now, uh, you know, the tech adoption is becoming prevalent across every segment of the real economy. And, you know, and the incumbents just structurally have no way to fight back. And now, of course, with the crisis, not only do they not have a way to fight back, but they're getting hammered. And so our chaotic little organisms called startups uh, do quite well and find opportunities. So I think this kind of displacement towards uh, tech companies dominating multiple segments is going to accelerate. The bad news in all that is I think it's awful for jobs because, uh, you know, people focus on it. AI a little bit too much, but the first step is workflow automation. You know, we're seeing workflow automation at speed in every industry, and then you kind of layer machine learning and ultimately vertical AI on top of it. And you know, the white collar industry is going to get hit really hard, etc. So there, there are big societal questions around it. Uh, but from a pure tech standpoint, I think a lot of our companies are going to not only model their way through, but actually do quite well, uh, even if they're suffering, but, you know, laying the foundation for the future and kind of come out of this thing pretty strong. So I'm, I'm not super negative. I just think that people will have to be mentally ready for a, a kind of marathon or even an ultra marathon with the problem being that you don't freaking know how long it's going to be. Yeah. And let, let's cover both of these um, or, or, or a couple different groups here. So, so how should VCs uh, change their behavior as a result of, of what's happened and what's, what's going to happen um, and, and may, maybe any misconceptions that they, they currently have about. Yeah, so I mean, I have two, there's two things that I, that I tend to think about. One is go sit down with your entrepreneurs and tell them that the forecasts don't matter. And what I mean by that is, man, you know, if you're a VC and you think your founder is not stressed about the crisis and how they're going to perform, you, you're, you're kind of an idiot, right? So you got to first go back to founders and say, the only thing that matters today is whether we are making the right decisions collaboratively to help the company get through this as best as we can. So the first thing is your role suddenly is to be a calm head to enable smart decision-making to try and take fear out of the room. So please don't add your anxiety to the founder and the team's anxiety and be a calming influence so that the right decisions can be taken. And by the way, there's probably not that many of them, but so you need a clear, simple plan that you can communicate over and over again that is called your either survival or thrive plan, and then you stick to it. What does not matter is whether you hit milestones or revenues or whatever, because in reality, we don't know. So please don't ask people to forecast and hold them accountable. Uh, it, it's kind of a waste of time. And then secondly, don't be that guy or that lady that just looks at the financials and says, you can afford to spend 250 a month because your road, your, um, your out of cash dates should be 18 months out. It's a forcing function, but it's not helpful. What you need to do is you need to get 
deep into the businesses. And if you haven't done so in the past, you really need to go and understand what's going on so that you can understand operational risks properly. When you start taking core members out of the team, you know, that makes then your runway, but you're taking operational risk. It could be in product delivery. It could be in client delivery and support. It could be uh, in, in funnel acquisition, like whatever it is, but you need to deeply understand what you're doing to the business by forcing these decisions. So I think this is a time when you need a, a high level and a detailed level of knowledge to go uh, before you have these discussions. And then finally, you know, don't limit yourself to your board role if there are places where you can help a company thrive. So I spent, I don't know, three times, three hours with one of our companies to really work on crafting a modified positioning for a COVID era, because uh, actually it's a company that does extremely well in remote environments, but I had never really sold against that messaging. And so, you know, rather than me uh, spending, uh, reviewing the budget 15 times, we kind of went deep into into the brand and the messaging and then the sales messages I- go underneath it and then how salespeople sell and then how we modify pricing and contract terms so that we remove the barriers to selling. So that's actually valuable to your company uh, because the reality is your your ability to impact the outcome here, no matter your own level of anxiety is pretty low, right? You gotta, you, you gotta let the team do their job. Totally. Let, let, let's transition to uh, say more about uh, from the founder perspective. Uh, how should the founder be change their point of view? What, what are misconceptions that people are telling founders uh, right now, or what, what's most important that they should be thinking about? Well, so uh, the the first when I connected with all our portfolio uh, founders and CEOs, well, actually all the founders and CEOs, the first thing we talked about was what's called the the Stockdale paradox. And so Admiral Jim Stockdale was this guy who was stuck in a Hanoi uh, prison called the Hanoi Hotel by the Viet Cong and was tortured for seven years. Anyway, to put it very briefly, he said, the moment I got put into that torture camp, I decided that this experience was going to shape me to become a better person. And that I would emerge victorious as a stronger individual than the way I came in. What he didn't do is make any assumptions about when they were going to get out and what it was going to be like, etc. He just decided that he was not going to let the experience define him, but that he was going to define himself through the experience. And the people who died in the Hanoi Hotel were the optimists. So the people who said, yeah, we'll be out by Christmas, we'll be out by Christmas, and guess what? Nobody got out by Christmas. And at some point, as he described it, they died of a broken heart. So the first thing is kind of a mental reset to say, Put yourself in that marathon mindset. The second thing is, you know, recognizing, uh, sorry, this is a bit meta, but it's like recognizing where anxiety comes from because people are just fairly well to remote uh, working. And even though there's a lot of cultural adaptation to, uh, you know, changing processes towards effective remote working. But the second thing is you find that there's a lot of anxiety that seeps into the team and even sometimes management that is ambient, right? So helping people recognize ambient anxiety helping people recognize that the work patterns are going to be different throughout the day and, and, and sort of change their management style. And so one of the things that I've encouraged people to do is this is a great time to find leaders within your organization because, you know, you really have no choice but to delegate deeply uh, and let people do their stuff because now, you, you know, you, do, you have fewer correction mechanisms. So this is actually a great time to find and develop uh, internally leaders and they may not be the people who you think and let these people shine and thrive and give them the conditions where this becomes an opportunity for them to grow. And then suddenly you're multiplying your leverage. Um, and you know, this is important for some founders who've been, you know, they've been running their ship really tightly. They might have 25 people in the company. They're not that used to delegating. And suddenly you're like, 
you know, I got to be, I got to be more efficient with fewer people in a distributed environment. Well, you know, first thing you do is invest in developing leaders underneath you. So very company specific. I don't mean to say these are recipes, but these are typically the things that I started talking about, um, you know, which have more to do with how to continue to function well as a startup uh, in this, in this new world. Right. And, and say more about what non-obvious sectors you expect to be helped or not as hurt as people think, or perhaps hurt uh, hurt much more than people think that you might stay away from investing. Yeah, so I, I'm going to not answer that question for the following reason: we are proudly, and I mean proudly, anti-thematic. And what I mean by that is that I'm constantly amazed and impressed by the unexpected ideas that founders come up with. And so we have always viewed our job as being the most mentally plastic that we can. It's like, come and see us with something we've never thought about. And if we're really convinced by you and we really think this thing can make, you know, can make an impact, we'll think about it, right? So we, we've never, we try to be non-formatted in our thinking. And I would say that in this COVID world, it is even more important because I've read all the thesis-based investing reports that people have produced, and they will say exactly the same thing, you know, remote work, remote learning, et cetera. So there definitely will be opportunities in that field. I don't mean to roll them out, but it's in a way, it's more of an opportunity for a growth fund that goes in and says, hey, I will invest in, uh, you know, Notion, or I will back Coda if you're looking for a Notion competitor or whatever it may be, and I'll help these companies scale and effectively anoint the winner. You know, if you're looking to enable remote work. I mean, these companies are already in the field. So the question is, okay, what's next? You know, so what's the next generation of companies we can build around these new paradigms or things we've never thought about, which have to do with new behavior, which by definition we can't detect. And so I, I don't mean to be, um, <laughs> I don't mean to avoid your question, but in a way, I always find there's nothing more uninspiring than asking if you see what trends they see uh, for, for that reason. And so I'd rather, I'd rather be surprised by someone coming through the door. Totally. Let's talk a bit about the the future of venture capital. Some some people think that you know, you, and I, as a perspective in this camp, it's 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 more it's a craft as you said earlier. And and you know, Teacher Boy says, hey, it's unlikely to 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 really evolve. I mean, you know, the best players are often still the best players. There's some new winners, but but the craft itself is is largely unchanged. Uh, others say, no, we're you know, gonna have explosions of uh, of data. Uh, you know, uh, venture itself hasn't evolved that, that much, but uh, it's going to start to look more like a product. What YC shown, you, you can really build platforms, you know, studios are, are exciting, di- different model. H- how do you think about venture capital and what will change and, and what will stay the same? So let's take a step back. We have a organizational form called a startup. The startup has a lot of beauty to it. By the way, whether it's tech-based or not, it's kind of a relevant. And because it is, again, a fast-evolving organism with no fixed organizational structure that's constantly iterating, uh, that's extremely resilient to shocks. So that is a very powerful form of organization if you're trying to launch new projects and scale them. So what you're seeing, in a way, is both the rise of tech and the rise of startups as an organizational form uh, with a lot of repeatable knowledge, a lot of reusable tools, you know, of course, AWS, et cetera. But I mean, at every level, as we know, we can now build on the shoulders of others way, way, way faster. So if you look at that and you say, well, this is changing the world and even the mid-market and even the SMBs as we know them, then there should be accompanying forms of capital against that. So 
I love all of it. And I think when you ask people what's the future of venture capital, they tend to preach for their own chapel. And I believe we will see coexistence of you know, small groups of craftspeople who founders appreciate working with and see the value in, uh, network-based assets like YC, um, and, you know, revenue-based finance, and, and, you know, more efficient bootstrapping if you want to follow the, the Basecamp school of thought. And I'm like, hey, the more the merrier. You know, this is this is great because it offers founders choice and, you know, it's horses for courses. So I don't view this as um, a dichotomy at all. I think the venture industry has somewhat earned a bad reputation, I would say, on average. Um, and that bad reputation, uh, which is due to uh, use of control and you know, just people losing empathy for the journey of the founder, et cetera. I mean, the, the, all this is true. You know, I've witnessed this in my career and it's it's made me angry and sad at times. Um, so I think the venture industry is getting a kick up the ass and it's been reinvented, quote unquote, from the inside, you know, a bunch of new managers with new uh, ethos and approaches uh, and then with a bunch of new products. I mean, I'm a huge fan of AngelList. Uh, Naval, from the beginning, had this idea of disaggregating venture capital. You know, let me put capital in a corner. Uh, let me put advisory in another one. And the whole platform was designed from the outset to kind of break open the model. And I'm like, hey, more power to you. You know, I, I love, I, frankly, I love all of it. I think it's just great for startups and for founders. So I'm not, I'm not choosing sides here. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, AngelList has been an interesting experiment, but it's been more sustaining than disruptive. And even YC, in some sense, as, as big as they've gotten, you know, the other players have also gotten bigger. So in, in, a, in another sense, it's also been uh, sustaining. And I, I wonder if, you know, the Series A, you know, doesn't really change, but it's that sort of first check. Like if you're going to be a network-based investor, like I think it's that first check or, you know, accelerator or, or, or pre-seed that uh, has potential too. Well, so I think that the industry has changed, actually. I think there's a lot of practices, uh, including around terms and the mode of engagement with founders that have evolved, and I think that's great. And so whilst the uh, players may be the same, et cetera, I do think the rules of the game have evolved in a, a good way. The use of data uh, is definitely going to have an impact. So I love what folks like Ryan Kalbeck are doing, which which is effectively let me choose DTC, uh, direct-to-consumer retail, and let me build a large-scale data asset that allows me to identify and invest in companies on a global basis very, very quickly. Uh, if you're modeling a DTC brand, you know the economics and the, and the way you model the actual company tends to be extremely similar across, across segments and models. And so you can really apply data aggressively to that, and I think that's awesome. In seed and pre-seed, similarly, so... There is effectively two schools of thought, right? So one in the, in Europe, it would be SeedCamp. You know, SeedCamp has 400 companies in portfolios. So let's do a high-velocity uh, check model. And then we sell, quote-unquote, to our founders a network asset. So don't expect to talk to us all the time. But, you know, we have 400 founders in the portfolio, 400 founders in the portfolio, including UiPath and TransferWise. And, you know, and you can go talk to all these folks. And I think... I think YC is kind of pushes even further, right? Which is really a kind of ghost in the machine model where the network is the product. And I think that's, I think that's super powerful. Um, at the same time, like back to what I said, you know, I view the work I do is not, it's called venture capital, that's fine. But in reality, we strike a business partnership with somebody who's building a business. If we don't feel passionate about the business they're building, we, pro we won't touch it. So in other words, if we don't really feel love and affection and passion for what the company is actually doing and the people in it, we're just not writing the check. And then we're business partners. And, you know, we, 
yeah, we happen to do it through money, but effectively we are all together on a mission to try and build the best business that we can. Um, so I, I, you know, going back to basics, I think that has, uh, that has staying power because, you know, if you speak to the big family offices, for example, so some of the family offices are fantastic. They're fantastic. Why? Because they're run by former entrepreneurs. So, uh, some guys made a ton of money in gaming. Uh, they made a billion or two in gaming, and then they go back out and they back gaming entrepreneurs. And what differentiates them from the average VC is their their respect for the founder journey, right? And I think no matter what you do, it's like you gotta remember what it's like to be a founder, the sacrifices you make, the intensity that it represents, and then put that at the center of however. Uh, whatever model you design and how you decide to operate uh, around the entrepreneur. Yeah, it, it is amazing to me how you know, you were mentioning you know you want to be chosen as a as a as a as a VC and you know twenty two companies sort of you know where it breaks the more selective you are the higher your uh, signal should be and and it is in in many ways and it also indicates you know how much time you'll have to spend with it, with that founder and yet YC has come in and shown another way which is you know, they've created perhaps the best startup credential in the world. And they have the most companies uh, in, in the world. It's sort of crazy how they've turned that turned that on, on its head a bit. Now that doesn't. Well, it, I'm not to say that they have the best signal in the world. You know, obviously Sequoia or, or many firms have better sort of signal, but it's it's the most sort of famous credential. Or you know, people say YC backed and TechCrunch before they say you know uh, Sequoia backed even often. Well, so I mean, YC effectively is has done a an incredible network centric layering job right so uh when you ask most people uh, uh you say yc name a founder most people say drew houston and it's incredibly aspirational even if you think about the story of of drew you know who was kind of struggling in boston got to yc and kind of took off you know this is a gateway where founders from around the world you know people in poland and estonia and you know they all think like if I make it through YC, it allows me to step up. And probably people in Sri Lanka and you know all around the world are like, if I'm the best in the world at what I do, this gateway opens up for me. And what they're, what they're effectively selling is access to the Bay Area, right? That if you if you want to simplify it down, it's like we will introduce you to the who's who of the Bay, and then over time that expanded to just to just include a, a global network, which is phenomenal. And like a good network asset, it feeds on itself. So. I think it's it's beautiful, it's powerful. Um, it, there is no way you can maintain signal at the same level, but that's okay because YC is sort of saying, "Hey, you're, you know, our, our selection process is still pretty, you know, pretty rigorous or at least pretty aspirational." And then all our all the people around us are quality people and they're grown ups, and you know they can make their own decision. And the social signal around specific companies will be a better determinant than whether you know Fred Destin decides to invest in X, right? Totally, totally. Some people say that there's too much capital in, in the ecosystem and that there's too many founders uh, in, in the ecosystem. And I, I struggle to believe how their uh, you know overall returns from technology would be would be better with either less venture or less founders. How do you think about this? Well, in the U.S., the data says eleven or twelve hundred um, seed funds have been created in the last ten years. That's an awful lot of firms, and you know that you you have to admit or you have to recognize that that's the market probably running ahead of itself. 
there is something Harry and I fundamentally dislike, which is what we call people who generally love the lifestyle. They exist both on the venture side and on the startup side. So a lot of people get attracted by the lifestyle. Oh, I'm not going to be a consultant, going to be a founder, which is actually very similar to 2000. We can spot people like that like a thousand miles away, and they're usually highly credentialed, and we tend not to back them. But at the same time, you know, there's a part of me that says, who are you to judge all these people who want to start companies and want to start funds? You know, like, let the game play itself out. Startups are everywhere. Um, and, and, you know, let's, let's just all celebrate that we live in this somewhat incredible era. Now, at a practical level, yes, there's too much seed capital, especially in the U.S. In Europe, I would argue that is not the case. Um, I think there are you know, 15 to 20 seed funds in the UK. And if you want to narrow that list down to, to the best, it's a, it's a small group. And, you know, we don't feel an abundance of capital. I mean, certainly there's competition, but it's far from crazy. Um, and I, I still don't think we're kind of tooled up or scaled up the way we should. Now, there's another factor here, which is mega funds. You know, uh, it, it blows my mind that people can raise every 18 months and they will raise a billion dollars every 18 months and like how, how on earth do you deploy i mean for me at least i would know how to deploy a billion dollars into a fund that's supposed to be say two and a half or three x net in 18 months i mean that's you got to be so skilled to do that that just kind of blows my mind so i think there's been a machine that we're basically you know everybody wants alternatives everybody recognizes the returns of venture and you know i think the machine has run ahead of itself so i think you kind of have to go back to first principles which is how fast can you intelligently invest the money that was entrusted to you in such a way that you're building a portfolio of quality that you can be proud of or are you playing the aum game and for sure people are playing the aum game uh let's not be naive right there is this idea out there that you know we're seeing sort of this bifurcation between uh, you know, uh, businesses that uh, Alex Denko calls them pointy, or I can't remember what the other term is, but basically this idea that, you know, companies are either going to be mega, mega outliers or more sort of, you know, um, indie businesses in, in some sense. And there's sort of this idea that as a result, VC firms should perhaps look more like, you know, SoftBank on the one one extreme, either mega, mega funds or more like nano, nano funds. And what's hollowed out perhaps is the, is, is, is the middle. Do you agree with that? So my question, I'm going to make the same comment I made before. Why do people need these extreme visions of markets that eradicate uh, continuity? Um, you know, the reality is fantastic to see Andrew Wilkinson and a bunch of others do uh, not so much nano funds, but, you know, back operating companies that are designed to exit on super high multiples. That's great. Fantastic that, you know, an Excel or a Sequoia growth can plonk a hundred million into a company and massively accelerate it to success. It, you know, why, why is, why are these the only two models that exist? The reality back again to what we said is technology is pervasive. Uh, the startup model is proven to output out competing incumbents. And, you know, it, it's not in every market segment that you're going to have, uh, you know, overarching winners of the size of Uber. Uh, take the SMB space, for example, a number of large companies can coexist selling to small and medium businesses uh, and actually build large businesses. Just look at task management. I mean, oh my God, you know, Monday, Asana, etc. And everybody's looking for the winner or same in CRM. It's like, well, 
there's a bunch of winners, you know, whose product fits the target that they're selling to, and who at some point are all going to go past 100 million in ARR. So that's not a mega company. That's probably a billion dollar company or 800 million or whatever, or possibly more if they're growing fast, right? So, you know, I think there's a continuum, and I think these black and white visions of the world are uh, they're, they're very dramatic and they're kind of romantic almost, but I, I don't see why the market would be that way. Uh, in any event, it's going to it's going to evolve organically, right? So the the money over the over very long periods of time will follow the returns. Let's say that we were thinking about how to encourage e- even more founders to to start companies or more people to start companies. What, what do you think would be the the biggest leverage points, or what, what are the biggest bottlenecks preventing people from starting companies today? Is it cultural? You know, you're in. Um, you're in London, which starts coming, but just Europe in general. I'm not sure about the culture relative to, to Silicon Valley in terms of the status of entrepreneurs. Is it more structural, I, you know, figuring out uh, health insurance solutions or, or even a you know, little bit of uh, capital in the beginning to, to get started? Uh, like, and I'm, I'm not even saying 150K, I mean like 5K or something, like you know, that type of grant if you, to leave your job and start something. What, what, what do you think about this? I mean, the first point you touched on, I think, is very important, which is we don't have any form of insurance health benefits that suits uh, either the self-employed or the self-starter or the startup, or if you want to, again, create a continuum there. Uh, It's especially true in the US. And, And I do think we need structural solutions to enable people to have portfolios of jobs and to start and fail in companies and to have no continuity in their careers. And, and, you know, that's being built. In fact, we backed a company in that space in the UK called Collective Benefits, whose mission I love. But, you know, that's embryonic. And I do think we need we need infrastructure to enable that because it is, you know, a tough conversation to have with your spouse, your husband or wife to say, you know, at the ripe age of 35, you know, I'm going to throw everything out the window and go completely out without a safety net. And, you know, I don't think we need the uh, the romantic glory of the ramen eating founder necessarily. I mean, that doesn't suit everybody. Uh, it also rules out, uh, you know, uh, single moms and it rules out people who are older. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a bunch of reasons why that's, that, that kind of archetype is not a great idea. Um, in terms of enabling entrepreneurs at scale, so you, I think, interviewed Matt Clifford at EF. You know, fundamentally what they're saying is, let me find great, scientists, researchers, etc., out of Imperial College and the like, and let's find, let's give them the courage to take the leap of faith to become entrepreneurs because you know what? It's not that complicated once you understand what it takes. My personal experience is that I grew up in a family where my dad was the first to go through university, a blue-collar family, and you know, they were super adverse to risk. And, you know, it was kind of deeply ingrained because never had money and, you know, everything was was valued and it took me a while to realize that i should take maximum risk when i was young and in fact i didn't at the beginning because i was kind of being brought up in that environment and then at some point i'm like what am i doing with my life you know i should have done this when i was 26 well i'm going to do it today because i wish i'd done it last week (laughs) and i'm certainly not going to wait until next week so for me you know risk appetite and understanding the learnings and the value that comes with risk and the resilience you build through taking risk and failing is something that I acquired relatively, uh, I mean, relatively late in life or later in life anyway. And um, I think that 
exposing people to that and so understanding the learnings and the velocity and the, the excitement in, again, try, fail, try again, and, and all the learnings that we are used to because we live inside that, that world. Well, let's expand that out. And by the way, let's expand it out to a uh, 16-year-old poor kid in Boston who's never had a computer at home and then can somehow learn JavaScript, number one, but number two, realize that he can start a business selling you know, skate stickers or whatever it may be that suddenly says, do you know what? It's not that complicated to get production aligned, to sell my stuff, to make a little bit of money. Why don't I apply to the coding skills that I learned online? So I, I think I, I'm kind of, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that uh, don't know their entrepreneurs today. Now that is quite different from what I would call the tourist entrepreneurs. Like these people are like, hey, it'd be cool to start a startup. And you know, I did my MBA at X and you know, I was a consultant at Mac and you know, I'm going to start a company and they have no particular passion and they do gap analysis. Uh, I think, by the way, kudos to them if they do it. It's just not the kind of people I like to back. But there's a whole rest of the population who doesn't, they don't even know what we're talking about here because they just haven't realized, quote unquote, how easy it is in a way to start with ideas and to build you know so let's make it accessible for people to understand how to build and then i think they'll self-select into the people that have the grit and the staying power to do it and those that maybe become employees of startups you know and you, you mentioned risk you, you talked about in your great higher stubbings episode uh, a couple years ago about the type of risk that you're you know okay taking versus versus, versus not okay taking i'm curious if you, uh and then you also talked about uh prices relates to that i'm, I'm curious if you could uh, uh, talk about that a little bit here how that's perhaps evolved as time goes on and of course as the, as the market has changed and how you're thinking about uh expecting to think about risk and uh and also uh price uh going forward yes so the the first the most obvious thing to say in the world is we hate founder risk, um, and I would say that we go. I tend to go quite far down that axis in the sense that, you know, a back people are really passionate about. They can be a bit scary. They can be a bit difficult, but they they kind of somehow gotta wow you, and then give them time to grow as entrepreneurs. So I not only dislike founder risk. Uh, at the beginning, but I also absolutely hate founder replacement risk, and I would rather give someone the benefit of the doubt for longer to grow as a manager or whatever skill they need to grow into than to replace them. Um, we hate, we don't like, and this is very specific to us, I guess, we really don't like market timing risk because as a seed fund, if you're wrong on two years in terms of adoption, it really kills you. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I've looked at AR, VR for years and I've never touched it because I was, maybe I wasn't deep enough in it, but I was enabled to predict for you when this was going to take off. Um, so we really don't like market timing risk. We don't mind execution risk. Uh, you know, I was involved in PillPack. It is a complex beast uh, to build and run. Uh, I, there's a lot of unknowns typically around, for example, go-to-market and scaling uh, sales and marketing channels, which is the type of risk I don't mind taking. And the reason for that is if you're fundamentally focused on great product and solving a customer problem of value prop that's important, I think you kind of tend to figure out the rest over time, even though it may not be obvious at the beginning. And similarly, we we look at TAM and we look at total addressable market, I guess, but it's more like we don't ever phrase it that way. Actually, we look for a, gl a glimmer of greatness. So even if you're tiny today, you know, 
paint me a path in your mind that leads to uncapped upside and, and, and kind of what does that narrative look like? So this is really not uh, a data-driven analysis. It's more understanding where in the future this thing could be breakout and, and kind of what that might look like. And you need a fair amount of creativity and you know a big leap of faith to usually take that step. Um, so market timing risk is the one that I would say uh, I hate the most. We don't really care about financials. Um, what we do care about is kind of we we like to grok business models and what i mean by that is again it's imagining how naturally given your position in a certain value chain at the type of value you offer to people you know you could conceivably get to a high operating leverage business that ends up uh you know uh, being being really valuable and so again i don't want to frame that in the context of knowing what your pricing is or what your business model is, but it's sort of imagining what a future business model looks like or what a defensible value chain position looks like and why that's really interesting. So you were asking how that's changed in the context of COVID. Well, the the hard piece for sure is market timing. And what I've been frustrated by is we're getting hot, super conflicting signal from, from our companies, including the ones that sell kind of fairly expensive enterprise software where, you know, half of their pipeline is accelerating and half of their pipeline is falling off a cliff. And, you know, net, net, they might be growing faster or slower. But I find that detecting clear signal, at least at this stage of the crisis, is extremely hard. And, and I think it's actually too early to draw any form of conclusion. So the, the number one issue I think we're faced with now is, is market timing. Uh, it is, you just don't want to push water up a hill. And I think the natural response to that for most VCs would be to move earlier and to fund projects that are still you know, in tech dev or in product discovery mode or market discovery mode and not anywhere near uh, commercial scaling. So that's a natural response. Uh, you know, I think I think we're just in the first innings of the crisis, and that's the reason why we're being quite cautious and quite uh, sort of deliberately slow because I just don't know. I can't forecast the future today. And and going back to COVID discussion for a second, what what have we learned about either how, how governments are operating or how they should be operating or or how how the Fed's operating? I, I think it seems that this has been a perhaps a small win for the modern monetary theory crowd of hey, it looks like you know, as, as to date, you can print a lot of money and because the U.S. is the reserve currency of the world, uh, it, it seems uh, less vulnerable than, than we thought. Uh, or perhaps it's premature. What do, you, what do you think about that? I think that at some point, uh, fiscal prudence will matter. I remember not that many years ago, people being worried about where to place T-bonds and whether the Chinese were still buying I think the world has been on a QE drugs for a long time. And so what's happening right now is people are looking at the past saying, look, QE works. You know, we can do as much QE as we want. Like, it doesn't matter. And whenever the entirety of the market tells you QE just functions, um, you, kind of, you sort of want to ask yourself, well, okay, but if the, if the majority consensus against uh, what should be the case, which is at some point, you know, demand drive, as up even for T-bonds. It's not because you're the world's reserve currency that that's sufficient to drive demand. Um, what, what is it about the consensus that's wrong? The last time we had a mega consensus across financial markets was real estate derivatives and, and credit derivatives. And at some point, the models just broke, right? So I'm, I'm, not very, I'm not very optimistic about the fact that QE can continue indefinitely and that government can borrow indefinitely without... Uh, some form of radical steepening of the yield curve 
or a return to inflation, which, you know, by the way, could translate into stagflation. So maybe it's because I'm from Belgium, but I remember when I grew up as a kid, you know, we went from 90% debt to GDP ratio to 100% debt to GDP ratio purely because of snowball effects on the debt, right? So we basically had runaway deficits. And of course, we weren't the reserve currency for shit. But, you know, this, this, was, this was the reality. And so I'm, I, I think it's crazy that we did these tax cuts in 2017 that really didn't seem to benefit the economy that much. I think it is, by the way, shocking that... Uh, these corporate bailouts are happening the way they are because they fundamentally aren't uh, helping the real economy. They're they're bailing out investors, and and we find that corporations and investors don't seem to invest enough in the real economy uh, to to really make a difference. So if your problem problem number one is stimulating demand and then sustaining your social fabric and effectively people's ability to survive, I think in particular in the US, this kind of piecemeal sector by sector uh, economic policy combined with QE is is the wrong thing to do. I think people are they're picking off sectors according to their lobbying capacity or their perceived importance to the economy. Uh, they're combining that with free credit, and I think it's a it, it's a it's a damaging combination. The rate is from a social standpoint, and I I think at some point you know the social pressures are going to come home to roost uh, pretty quickly, and so I'm I'm pessimistic. Let's close with a, with a message to the to the founders around uh, one, one of the you know, most important things, which is uh, uh, reserving capital and not going out of business, thinking about fundraising. Uh, what's what's critical for for founders to uh, to keep in mind as they sort of plan their next fundraise, whether that's you know six months out or eighteen months out or twenty four months out? Uh, what's uh, what's very important for them to to consider? I think it is easy to fall into a trap where all you're focused on is. Um, your crisis plan, your financial roadmap, uh, and etc. And it's important to remember that it, more today, maybe that at any point, people buy into exciting narratives. That includes your employees, that includes your investors. And so don't forget, I would say to founders, don't forget to tell the story of why you're doing this, why this is going to be exciting. And if you're effectively going through a year or two or three of you know, muddying your way through a crisis, on the way out, you're building an asset or an infrastructure or a set of clients or a value prop that will put you in good stead to build incredible companies. And so I think keep that, keeping that narrative alive and keeping... You know, keeping that sort of long-term vision, it has to be real, of course, but, you know, keep people excited about what it is you're building. And I think that's the, the, the one thing I would tell entrepreneurs today, which is, you know, yes, people want risk reduction, but don't forget to, to make uh, investors in particular dream. Totally. That, that's a great, uh, great note to end on. Uh, my guest today has been Fred Destin of, of Stride. Uh, for people who want to learn more, uh, Fred, uh, wh- where might you point them? Um, well, so Harry's podcast is the 20 Minute VC. I mostly am active on Twitter at FDestin. I promise not to comment on oil uh, or the US elections. Otherwise, I'm Fred at stride.vc. Awesome. Thank you for a, a, great, uh, a great episode. This, is, this has been uh, fantastic. All right. Thanks a ton, Eric. Speak to you soon. you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.